Thanks for joining us today on Mormon Land, where we explore news in and about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm managing editor Dave Noyce. I oversee the Solid Tribune's faith coverage. I'm joined by senior religion reporter Peggy Fletcher-Stack. Hello, Peggy. Hi, Dave. We remind our listeners about another way to support Mormon Land. Just go to patreon.com, where with a small donation, you can access transcripts to our podcasts, our complete newsletter, and all of our exclusive religion coverage. Again, that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Mormonland. Now for today's show. In 1833, a leading Latter-day Saint, William W. Phelps, published a column under the headline, Free People of Color, making it clear that since its founding three years earlier, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints exercised no racial barriers. Black members were not only welcome in the fledgling faith, but also eligible for all of its rights and privileges. It was a stance that did not sit well with many Missourians and with the racist views scarring much of America in those pre-Civil War days, and one that did not last even inside the church itself. The faith's second prophet president, Brigham Young, eventually departed from the ways of founder Joseph Smith and instituted a ban barring black Latter-day Saints from priesthood ordinations and temple ordinances. That prohibition endured for nearly 130 years, a stain that the global faith and its members grapple with to this day. In his new book, Let's Talk About Race and Priesthood, from Church-Owned Deseret Book, W. Paul Reeve, head of Mormon studies at the University of Utah, relies on historical records and scriptural passages to examine how and why the church shifted from an inclusive approach on race to a restricted one and ultimately back to its original universalist theology. He joins us today in studio to discuss the faith's evolution on this sensitive topic and the challenges that still lie ahead. Professor Reeve, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Okay, so... Many Latter-day Saints are surprised when they find out that blacks had the priesthood at the first of the church. What do we know about Joseph Smith's position on black ordination and and black equality, suffrage, slavery? Yeah, well, uh, the surviving record, there's no indication that Joseph Smith implemented a racial restriction. And in fact, that he sanctioned the ordination of a few black men to the priesthood. Uh, so uh, the record is really quite clear on that. Uh, also, uh, temple admission policies uh, up to 1840. Uh, there's a, a publication under the heading of the first presidency articulating open temple uh, admission for people of all colors. Mm-hmm. So what about Joseph's positions on, say, equality and suffrage? Slavery. And slavery. Yeah, so his position on slavery evolves over time uh, in in the 1830s simply because of uh, the fraught uh, actual physical location for where he defined his Zion. Uh, it was a slave state. Mm-hmm. And Latter-day Saints were expelled from Jackson County for the very purpose that you uh, began the podcast with, uh, that Free People of Color uh, editorial that um, William W. Phelps published. So in response, uh, Joseph Smith issues and the church issues um, some statements that uh, try to back away from that uh, uh, and simply say that Latter-day Saints shouldn't baptize enslaved people without permission from their masters um, and bought into the existing tropes about slavery at the time. But by the time he passes away in 1844, Mm -hmm. he's advocating for uh, emancipation, government-funded emancipation. 
mm-hmm. when he was running for president. Correct. Right? Yeah. Correct. So do we know about how many black members were ordained during Joseph Smith's tenure? Now, and can we assume it would have been more if the priesthood had been granted as liberally as it is, say, today? <laughs> Yeah, so um, two well-documented black men ordained to the priesthood during Joseph Smith's lifetime. Uh, and the important thing to keep in mind is that there were uh, white men were not universally ordained during the time period. So they were operating under just simply an organizational structure in each branch or congregation of the church, enough men to run uh, the branch structure or the congregational structure, but no more. Um, they didn't. The the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints didn't start uh, systematically ordaining young men at age twelve until the early twentieth century. Hmm. So uh, the fact that a few black men were ordained in 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 a time period when not all white men were ordained makes it that much more significant. Okay, so what? prompted Brigham Young to reverse Joseph Smith's openness on race? I think it's fear of race mixing. Uh, he, he becomes aware of uh, William McCary, who is starting his own schismatic group in uh, the Winter Quarters region, uh, and it has himself sealed to a variety of white women in a sexualized... He's uh, an African-American sil- member. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I should have uh, specified that. Yeah. <laughs> William McCary is an African-American member. Um, he starts his own schismatic group. Uh, Brigham Young becomes aware of this by the end of December, by December of 1847, as well as aware of a mixed racial couple in the low Massachusetts branch. Enoch Lewis has married Mary Matilda Webster. Enoch is black. Mary Matilda Webster is white. They have a child together. Uh, Brigham Young becomes aware of that at a meeting that takes place in winter quarters on December 3rd, 1847, and he starts to move in a decidedly different direction. He, by, in March of 1847, was on record as favorably aware of a black priesthood holder, Enoch Lewis's father, Q. Walker Lewis. Uh, it was an elder in the low Massachusetts branch. Referred to him as some like a great elder or something like yeah. that, right? One of the finest, one, we have one yeah. of the best elders, an African in Lowell, a barber. That mm-hmm. matches exactly what we know about yeah. Key Walker Lewis. And so then what happened to Brigham? Keep going on what happened to Brigham. Well, by, by 1852, he is publicly articulating a racial restriction. And it takes place uh, in the context of the Utah Territorial Legislature. Uh, Brigham Young is territorial governor, and Orson Pratt is a legislator in that legislative session, but also an apostle. And Brigham Young is obviously the leader of his faith. So these men are, uh, you know, wearing multiple hats, uh, but debating a bill that has been introduced in that legislative session designed to define the relationship between white enslavers and their black enslaved. And the debate over that bill, uh, as well as the fact that Orson Pratt proposes black male voting rights in 1852 in Utah Territory, produces Brigham Young's most strident uh, stance against priesthood ordination for black men. So you already brought this up, but what were the differences between Brigham Young and Orson Pratt in terms of their perspective on the issue. People say, oh, well, Brigham Young was simply a a man of his time. Everyone shared his views. 
as as a kind of way to defend him? Yeah, so certainly uh, other people in the 19th century shared Brigham Young's views, yes. right? But it's important to understand that it, it it's you can't just uh, dismiss Brigham Young as uh, merely a product of his time. First of all, he shifted his position over time, so favorably aware of a black priesthood holder in March of 1847, and then summarily rejects black priesthood ordination in February of 1852. So his own position changes, and he's a product of the 19th century. He says in March 1847, we don't care about the color. By February 1852, he clearly cares about the color. Uh, Orson Pratt, also a product of the 19th century, is advocating for black male voting rights. So it's not just everyone is racist back then uh, because uh, Orson Pratt is advocating for black male voting rights in 1852 Utah Territory. He's also a product of the 19th century. Joseph Smith, a product of the 19th century, uh, sanctions black male uh, priesthood ordination. So it's too easy an explanation to try to dismiss this as just the racism of the time. So as you're as, as reading it and read some of the comments from Brigham Young and its explanations as to why, I, I think many readers and members may be surprised at the harshness and extent of what can only be seen as bigotry, you know, uh, uh, against blacks. When you come across those, when you're researching, when you're writing it, how did those, when you read those affect you? Oh, it deeply affects me. Uh, the 5th of February, 1852 speech is, I think the worst speech in, uh, the history of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, we, we went back to uh, the Pittman shorthand version of that speech, um, and, and Legene Purcell Carruth, who was an employee of the Church History Department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, transcribed that. Uh, and it was never published in the 19th century. Uh, George Watt recorded it. He was the legislative recorder. Uh, but... Uh, we found the original Pittman version, and so that's been transcribed, and that's what I rely upon for this book. And Legene transcribes, um, you know, the words, but then they have to be put into sentences with punctuation because a Pittman doesn't include that, and a lot of time leaves out the prepositions and some of the, you know, uh, conjunctions and those kind of things. So uh, I'm the person that put that speech into sentence form and probably read it more than anyone else on the planet. Um, and I cried. Uh, I've cried many times over that speech. Um, it's, it's terrible. Can you give just an example, maybe edit it as you, as you please is what you want to share, but uh, sure. of, of the things that were said. Sure. Uh, so Brigham Young articulates a, a cursed racial identity for people of black African descent. He believes that they are cursed descendants of Cain. He buys into a longstanding racial justification that predates the founding of the uh, LDS faith, uh, but brings it into the faith with him and then gives it theological weight in this 5th of February speech and says, because Cain kills his brother Abel, uh, all of Abel's descendants, who he presumes to be white people, must receive the priesthood before any of Cain's descendants can receive the priesthood. And he presumes black people to be cursed descendants of Cain. 
so he stridently uh, prohibits priesthood ordination, but he's also responding to Orson Pratt's uh, advocacy for black male voting rights. So Brigham Young will say, we just as well give mules the right to vote as Negroes and Indians. He also uh, says what we're trying to do today in advocating for black male voting rights is to make black people equal with us. And he says, I will be uh, opposed to that all the, all day long. Uh, so he stakes out a position of black inferiority. Uh, a section of the speech is also aimed at race mixing. He argues that if uh, all the elders in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints were to mix their seed with the seed of Cain, it's the language that he uses, it would bring the curse upon the church and would bring the church to ruin. Uh, so those are the consequences of race mixing in his estimation. And um, he has advocated that position really stridently in, in that speech, obviously a response to Orson Pratt and the position that Pratt stakes out. And Pratt is uh, stridently against the proposed bill, um, doesn't want slavery introduced uh, within the territory, argues that the bill should re be rejected in total, and doesn't believe in multi-generational curses. And in 1856 says there is no proof that Africans are descendants of Cain. Only reason Brigham Young ever articulates for the racial restriction and Orson Pratt rejects it. Wow. What early hints do we get that Spencer W. Kimball, who eventually would become the church president, might be willing to lift the ban as he did in 1978? Any hints? Yeah. So in 1963, as an apostle, he refers to the restriction as a possible error and says that, you know, God may be willing to forgive this possible error. Uh, I think there's no coincidence then that uh, Spencer W. Kimball is at the helm when that forgiveness takes place. Uh, so that's a, a really early indication of where he was at and how he was thinking as early as 1963. He, he also, um, at the time, the international church was kind of grappling with this issue of how do you determine who might not be uh, have African ancestry or something. He was he had to intercede sometimes or was asked to intercede and would allow ordinations to take place. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that's correct. Mm -hmm. uh, so obviously, as the church is growing internationally, especially in areas in uh, South America where uh, race mixing was not, uh, you know, uh, um, seen as as negatively as as uh, you know the segregation that took place in the United States, uh, the the church was very well aware that it's really impossible to ferret out what was considered one drop of African ancestry. That was the language used mm -hmm. at the time. So in other words, if you ha you could have a person could have 99 white ancestors and one black ancestor would mean you had a drop of African ancestry and, and ostensibly would be prohibited from temple admission and, and priesthood ordination. But, you know, uh, moving into areas where Rick's mixed racial identities are just the norm, uh, it, it, it was impossible to ferret out one drop of anyone's ancestry. In fact, in the United States, it was impossible as well. And the book gives several examples of those impossibilities. But it was for Spencer W. Kimball, um, you know, 
the international church that brought this to the forefront. And, you know, I share one example in Ecuador where he ordained someone who the missionaries understood to be of African ancestry. And he simply says, I uh, believe God wants this man to be ordained. And so no one questioned it because he was an apostle at the time. And because locals were saying this faithfulness of this person, that was the barometer they were using. Right. Uh, right? Yeah. Right. Um, so devotion to God versus racial identity. Right. And he would side with devotion to God over racial identity. Right. So when you broached the, uh, the question about how the band came to be in the church, you state matter-of-factly that you, quote, do not believe the racial restrictions were of divine nature. So, and you talk about this, how, how do you balance this, what you call heavy history um, that you explore as a scholar with your belief as a person of faith? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I, in, in the latter chapters of the book, uh, Desert Book actually asked me to grapple with that and, and to grapple with it openly. And so um, the readers will get my way of grappling with it. It's a challenge. Uh, it raises the question of prophetic fallibility. Uh, and um, I, as a historian, see how these racial restrictions uh accumulated growing precedent over time and eventually became solidified in place in the early 20th century. Um, why they lasted as long as they do, the historical record for me answers that. But then what do you do with that as uh, a person of faith? And for me, um, it just prompts me to, uh, you know, be circumspect and hope for ownership of the Latter-day Saint racial past so that Latter-day Saints can, um, uh, you know, recognize the way that they were sometimes racialized in the 19th century and then own their own racism and then turn that for the good to stand in places of empathy in the 21st century and become advocates for uh you know, racial change, racial justice, and and uh, use it as a power for good rather than being hobbled by it and not quite know how to deal with it. So the church has disavowed some of those um, justifications for the ban now, but members keep coming up with new ones. <laughs> and kind of the the biggest one I've heard is, well, we don't know why, but there was purpose, divine purpose in it. What do you what do you say to that? Well, the book in itself is my answer to we don't know why. This is what we do know. And this is, in my estimation, clear evidence. Uh, the book demonstrates through evidence, through the historical record, where the racial restrictions came from. And Brigham Young on the 5th of February, 1852, clearly said he knew why. Uh, he stridently said he knew why. So... Uh, you know, um, to suggest otherwise is is to actually suggest that, um, you know, Brigham Young was, was somehow wrong. Um, I, I think he was wrong, but nonetheless, he claimed he knew why. So uh, he tells us why um, Orson Pratt doesn't brought by it. Um, so the book is my answer to the question we don't know. And I'm saying this is what we do know. And this is how I can see it taking place over time. The racial restrictions accumulating, growing precedent over time. Um, it makes sense to me as a historian how this took place. But what about the justification I've heard from even some church leaders saying, well, 
the priesthood was unfold it unfolded over time first it went to the levites etc cetera, etc cetera, that this was somehow god's timeline yes yeah, uh, so, have you heard that oh yeah of course <laughs> uh so uh this is just simply a divine timeline what you have to deal with then is the fact that joseph smith claims five revelations all contained in a book of scripture called the doctrine and covenants that latter-day saints accept as scripture uh, stipulating that the gospel was to be preached unto every creature. Who does that leave out? Every creature is inclusive, and he is articulating an inclusive racial vision uh, at the founding of the uh, what is considered the Restoration for Latter-day Saints. So uh, when you suggest there's somehow a divine timeline, you are erasing the original black pioneers from the Latter-day Saints story and suggesting they don't exist until 1978. Uh, and you're erasing their faith. And this book uh, attempts to put them back into the story and demonstrate the ways in which uh, decisions made by white male leaders actually have impact on lad black Latter-day Saints in the pews. Mm -hmm. So real world implications. Uh, so the divine timeline is uh, there from the beginning. It's the gospel, the Latter-day Saint gospel is to be preached unto every creature. Uh, there is no parallel Jews first and then Gentiles. It was for everyone from the beginning, and black Latter-day Saints have been a part of the faith from 1830 to the present. And you also just briefly talk about um, Peggy mentioned the the Levite biblical Levite example, the the fallacy in that argument. Um, could you explain how that doesn't really connect and equate? Sure. So uh, another justification is well, uh, you know, in ancient Israel, God restricted priesthood ordination to the the tribe of Levi, who administered uh, the law of Moses in the tabernacle. Uh, and so some have suggested then that that's a parallel to black priesthood restriction in the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, I believe that's also just a false parallel. First of all, there were other people besides Levites who were ordained. The Book of Mormon uh, includes a variety of peoples who uh, ostensibly are using priesthood. They were not Levites. Uh uh, Elijah, um, Melchizedek, other figures that Latter-day Saints understand to be not a part of the tribe of Levi, but priesthood holders in Old Testament times. But even if you take the tribe of Levi's role in the tabernacle, it's not a parallel. Tribe of Levi, uh, their role was to welcome the other tribes in and to help them make the sacrifices required by the law of Moses. So they welcomed them into the tabernacle. The racial restrictions in the 19th century excluded Black Latter-day Saints from the temple. Can't gain entry even into the temple. Exactly. Right. Yeah. right? So it's not a parallel, uh, um, even though some people tend to s suggest that it is. And, and I lay out the reasoning uh, mm -hmm. behind that in the book. Yeah. So your book was published by Deseret Book. What, did you have any hesitation of going with Deseret Book? And did they, did you have any, did they make you make any big changes or omissions or? So uh, to be clear, Deseret Book asked me to write it. I did not approach Deseret Book. Uh, and when Deseret Book approached me, it was in 2018. Uh, they 
uh, articulated for me their vision for this new series, the Let's Talk About series, where they are attempting to tackle a variety of sometimes controversial topics uh, with, uh, you know, all the scholarly apparatus, but aimed at a non-scholarly audience, a non-academic audience, you know, the average Latter-day Saint, uh, but to substantiate it with the same kind of re- research that I would write for an academic audience. Uh, and, you know, to answer your question, Peggy, I was skeptical. Uh, I expressed that skepticism the first time Desert Book <laughs> talked to me. I said, I am really skeptical that Desert Book will be willing to publish w- anything that I write on this topic. I just didn't think they would be willing to go there. Um, and I asked them to read uh, Brigham Young's 5th of February 1852 speech in its entirety, the Pittman version, uh, and said, you know, if I do this, I'll be quoting from that speech. You can't come to me at the end and say you can't say that. And uh, that was my condition. And, and obviously they agreed and the book is now published. Is there any new research in the book um, that wasn't published previously in your earlier book? Yes. So uh, new evidence that has uh, come to light. So uh, Orson Pratt's 1856 speech where he says we have no proof that Africans are descendants of O'Kane is not in religion of a different color. That speech was transcribed by Legene Purcell Carruth uh, and is included here. Just a snippet. Um, uh, Legene and Christopher Rich and I are working on a, a volume uh, that uh, documents the 1852 legislative session and then the 1856 application for statehood. And it's uh, out of that 56 application for statehood that Orson Pratt again stridently speaks against slavery, but also uh, against the notion that black people are cursed descendants of Cain. That's new. Uh, the fact that Joseph F. Smith um, uh, interviews Elijah Abel, who is a black priesthood holder, He interviews him in 1879. Uh, The record, the notes that Joseph F. Smith uh, took at the time that he interviewed Elijah Abel have now come to light. And so uh, that wasn't in religion of a different color. Um, And then the other, I think, probably most important thing is I'm involved with the Century of Black Mormons Project at the University of Utah. And so... Uh, to date, we have 130 bios of Black Latter-day Saints included in the database and 200 more under research. And that allowed me to then tell the story of Black Latter-day Saints and their experience so that it's not just the white male leadership decisions, but actually we can illustrate in this book how those decisions had real-life implications in the lives of Black Latter-day Saints. And so uh, a variety of Biography is included in this volume that wasn't in Religion of a Different Color because the research hadn't been done. And it allows us to illustrate the impossibilities of policing racial boundaries. Uh, The Century of Black Mormons database, for example, includes white Latter-day Saints who have contacted me in the 21st century and said, we have African ancestry in our DNA. And we think it traces to ancestor X or Y. And then doing the research... um, you know, allows us to illustrate how racial passage has taken place over time. And the introduction to this book includes the Nelson Holder Ritchie family. I start the book by giving that family's example. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, the Century of Black Worms has been a valuable resource for us, too. <laughs> I know. So uh, great. Uh, in, in the foreword, 
Darius Gray, whom I think you dedicate the book to, a, a much beloved co-founder of the Genesis Group, uh, you know, support group for black members, uh, writes this sort of poignant but kind of pleading sentence. He says, it saddens me that we have yet to rid ourselves of views that have never been of God. What do Latter-day Saints in their church need to do to rid themselves of those racist views? Well, uh, the, the, the current leadership of the LDS faith has asked for Latter-day Saints to lead out in abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice and to root out racism. That's from the first presidency in the LDS faith currently. How do you root out racism if you're unwilling to examine its roots? And um, obviously, I am a historian, so I believe that understanding the history, being willing to sit with the weight of it, grapple with it, confess it, and own it, is a part of the healing process. Uh, so understanding this history, then uh, I believe can help Latter-day Saints to move forward in a position of empathy rather than being defensive and deny it or try to justify and explain it away. What if Latter-day Saints were willing to own it and simply acknowledge the racism and then um, say, okay, we participated in this as a, a faith. Um, we are now willing to stand in places of empathy uh, in matters of racial justice moving forward. Is that for your hope for what the book accomplishes? Yeah, absolutely. I hope that Latter-day Saints uh, have a more complex understanding of the Latter-day Saint racial history. The book is laid out in three broad sections. Um, most Latter-day Saints that I encounter continue to think that the racial restrictions were in place from the beginning. Uh, the book's very structure, uh, I hope, causes Latter-day Saints to rethink that assumption and to have a more complex understanding of how the racial restrictions develop over time. And then, yes, uh, to be willing to move forward and root out racism and abandon actions and attitudes of prejudice because they understand what it looked like amongst themselves in Latter-day Saint history. The name of the book again is Let's Talk About Race and Priesthood. Um, Paul Reeve, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Be well, okay? Thank you. And thanks to Peggy Fletcher Stack. Always a pleasure. And to our producer, Christopher Samuels. We remind our listeners that you can keep up on all the happenings in and about the church by subscribing to the Salt Lake Tribune's free Mormon Land newsletter. Just go to sltrip.com to sign up, and we'll talk again next time on Mormon Land. Mormon Land.